You're listening to Season 4 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not-yet fans. We analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 4.5. You belong to me, I belong to you, we belong to Earth. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and as we are recording this during the week of American Thanksgiving, I'd just like to say that I'm thankful that you tuned in to our podcast. And I'm Nina, enjoying that self-employed holiday paradox of, I can take time whenever I want, and I need to finish this episode, even if we're spending all day Thursday eating. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 548 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporters, Danielle K, Ian, something that is either USO Ninja or USO Ninja, Bepsi or Soup, Crazy Probe, Jason C, Jordan P, Brian G, Grand Abbott Mateo, Nick W, Dan W, Pillar of Salt, Stratos, Sorcerer Supreme, Leroy G, Squid Livid, Connor C, Revolution, Eleanor M, and Devin T. This podcast would not be possible without your support. And while we don't mention you by name, I want all the returning patrons and patrons who've increased their pledges to know we really appreciate it. A lot of you had to cancel or decrease pledges because of COVID-related disruptions, and it means a lot to us that you're back. We are joined once again by longtime friend of the show and our neuropsychology consultant, Dr. Shar. Uh, Dr. Shar has in the past come on the program to talk about brains and the ways that they break in space and the sad boys who have them. <laughs> Hello. Hi, guys. Now, ever since Dr. Shar first joined our program, I have been fielding comments from listeners begging me and sometimes threatening me. Um, <laughs> To ensure that we would bring Dr. Shar on for Shar's counterattack. <laughs> well, it worked. She's here. And we're going to talk about the psychology of the characters in Shar's counterattack. Uh, Dr. Shar has watched the entire movie. Entire movie. <laughs> several times, as I understand it. Yes, and I have some wonderful nuances for watching it in dub with sub, so it's hilarious to me. Oh, wonderful. Oh. I will provide you the intonations that you're probably missing. <laughs> you're really putting in the work on this. <laughs> well, we appreciate it. It also occurred to me that because you came in on other shows, you've actually seen a bit of the development of these characters over time. Yeah, yeah. It's just funny to see them in snapshots. I have no idea how old they are now. I'm sure they're well into their... Shar, I'm going to guess, like, into his 30s now, yeah? 
yes, so this takes place in UC 93. We originally met them back in UC 79, so we've seen about 14 years of their uh, their respective lives. <laughs> okay. That means that Char is just about 34. Oh, okay. So he's like proper our ages now. And then Amaro is like 29. And Quest is what, like 14? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think Quest and Hathaway are both 13. Okay. Seeing them was like when my family brought me to like my pediatrician and then like you run into each other again 10 years later. Like, oh, hey, how um, how are those gummy vitamins doing for you? <laughs> <laughs> In fact, um, the snapshots of their lives that you've seen are spaced out roughly equally. So hmm. you see them once in 79, we meet them again in, I believe, 86, and then again in 93. So we're seeing about you know a seven-year jump each time. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, what would you like me to start on? <laughs> well, when I asked Dr. Shah to watch this movie, I pointed to three characters that I thought would probably be the ones where we'd get the most discussion. And those were Char, Amaro, and of course, Quess. But before we start in on them, I'd just like to ask you, Doctor, is there anyone else in the movie who really stood out to you? Um, so, I mean, Hathaway I want to punch in the face for getting a brain fact wrong, but that's okay. <laughs> Oh, this would be the myth about humans only using half of their brains on Earth yeah. and then unlocking <laughs> the other half when they go into space. Yeah, like zero gravity would not help with that. So I was like, shut up. Anyway. I need to be honest with you, Doctor. When I was 13, I think I believed that too. <laughs> well, I had heard it from someone in authority and had no reason to question it. That's fine. And uh, while it is certainly a popular and a long enduring bit of mythology, uh, I think the movie also knows that that's not quite right because <laughs> it's Hathaway and Quest talking about how people become new types or what it means to be a new type. And both of them have these kind of vague ideas that they've gotten from other people <laughs> and it's... that clearly don't jibe with each other. <laughs> yeah, I don't think the movie at any point gives us any reason to think that Quest or Hathaway are right about anything <laughs> that they talk about. That's, yeah, I was like, fine, you put it in the in the mouth of that kid. That's fine. And uh, Gune, Gune gave me some giggles. And the other women... Nanai or Nanai. Chan? Nanai and her constant struggle to uh, wrangle an adult, well, someone parading as an adult leader. <laughs> <laughs> nice foreshadowing for our discussion later. Oh, no. I'm glad you agree with my assessment. Oh, no. <laughs> well, Nanai is kind of a surrogate mother to the Xeon men, Yune, Shar, and also to Quess. Oh, I see that's working out very well. I mean, her relationship with Quest is almost identical to Quest's relationship with uh, Kathy, the uh, mistress of her father who appears at the beginning of the movie. Listen, I didn't see Quest bite anyone but Kathy, so... <laughs> but she does she does pull away from Nanai when Nanai tries to grab her arm oh. and almost goes to, like, hit Nanai before Nanai slaps her. Dang. And Kathy does try to slap Quest in the airport, but fails to do so. <laughs> So besides Hathaway and Gune, did anyone else stand out for you, or should we jump into our main characters? You've explained to me Lala on several occasions, but still makes no sense to me. But that's okay. Jump right in. All right. Well, 
We've already sort of started talking about Quest and her um, issues, to put it mildly, <laughs> with older women. So let's start with Quest. This is something we have seen come up in other Gundam series, but not as strongly as it does here, that Quest considers herself in competition with all other women all the time <laughs> and really sees romantic attraction, romantic connection as the only way for her to relate to men. <laughs> She's not interested in being friends with anybody. I don't think she knows what friendship is. And I'm not entirely certain she knows anything about what like romance is either. I, I don't really think she wants Char to kiss her, for instance. I think she just wants attention. Well, but she, to a certain degree, she's been entirely warped by the situation with her parents, right? Absolutely. And she's been more or less ignored by her father. Her father and her mother split up, and then she sees her father giving all of this time and attention and care to this other woman, and that's what she wants. She wants someone to pay attention to her and take care of her and make her feel protected and loved. And her only context for that is this affair <laughs> that her father is having. Yeah, that is nothing but competition because her mom clearly lost. And she never mentions her mother at all. Yeah. Even when she's talking about destroying the earth, which presumably her mother lives on. I <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you guys, when did her mom leave? Or like, what happened? I mean, you've seen the movie, right? I have, yes. Well, so have we. Yeah, there's there is no indication of where her mom is. Cool. So so the list the list of mom figures for Quest is Psychic Lady from India and um and maybe Char and Amaro's humans ladies. Maybe. And again she sees herself as in competition with them. The people who offer Quest attention are both younger men. Mm. Um not younger than her, but certainly younger than Amuro or Char, and she has no interest in them whatsoever. <laughs> I think both Hathaway and Gune would happily fall at her feet uh, and let her walk all over them, but she has no interest in that at all. Right. That attention is not valuable to her. Someone her own age can't make her feel protected in the way that she wants. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> Tom and I noted in several... <laughs> passing conversations about quests sure. that she is just completely steeped in entitlement <laughs> and privilege and because of that i think she's drawn to power of course and the men her own age don't have any not really that would make sense it's just funny because um the intonation that she has when they when she says oh this is why couples fight uh, is hilarious and kind of just like this kind of drifty, dreamy voice. She's like, oh, this is why couples fight. Kind of like that's the only attention she knows and wants because mm -hmm. that definitely gets into like this power dynamic because it's going to be arguments that have a winner uh, and the younger boys don't want to argue with her. They won't create that conflict. And I also think that's why she's really drawn to war. Mm. Um so all this conflict, all these things would create a clear winner in her mind. Uh, since when we're very young, we also think very binarily, you know, yes or no's. And I also think that like, she is really the new type. Like, isn't she just in touch with everyone's emotions all the time? She feels them, but she doesn't necessarily understand them, <laughs> which is 
Well, which is one of the things that I think she has in common with Char, actually. Mm. Mm. There are so many times in this movie where it seems Quest doesn't really grasp the reality of the situation. <laughs> like, it, she doesn't get that she's in a war. Yeah, yeah, that conversation with her and Hathaway, just like, yeah, Shar's right, people on Earth suck. And then he's like, hey, what, why would you kill them all? Does that seem righteous? Well, I don't know, I'm just a kid. I'm like, so, so easy to flip-flop on that. Right. It was really good of Hathaway to challenge her thinking in that moment. He sure did try. And he does fall into that same trap as well, that inability to recognize the reality of the situation, particularly at the end of the movie when he kills Chan. Mm. He's angry and his feelings are hurt. And so he expresses that through shooting, um, which because everybody in this movie is linked, you know, that's the way Gune describes Char earlier on when he says, when people like the captain get angry, they start destroying colonies. But as soon as Hathaway actually has killed immediately, you see the reality of it settle upon him. And he's like, he realizes he has done the bad thing, hmm. right. but only after having done it. Whereas for Quest, she's sitting there going, oh, why do I feel ill? And it's like, well, maybe because you just killed probably hundreds of people. <laughs> just a thought, <laughs> uh, you know. <laughs> I feel ill. This is also part of the things that I feel in general from the general universe, you know. Yeah, she she sort of like claims to Char later that she didn't feel anything when she shot the ship down, but she did. She felt ill. She just could not connect that to any like broader emotional understanding. It was not, oh, I feel conflicted or, oh, I feel guilty or, oh, I feel sad. It was just, oh, I feel physically sick <laughs> and I'm not uh, processing why. Yeah, no, I agree. Um that's also a sign of like being a child with emotions. I mean, I, again, you guys always have me talking about kids, but I don't work with kids. Uh, <laughs> just the kids are, that are depressed, you know, they present with more of the physical symptoms of depression, like the stomach ache, the inability to sleep and um, like headaches and stuff. So that would make sense that she doesn't have the words for these complex emotions. And I'm trying to picture how awful that is to like sit with all the complex emotions of everyone because you're a freaking empath and you're like, I don't know if these are mine and I don't know if these are yours and I don't have words for any of this and no one will ever give me any words for this because there aren't that many empaths. And then the one empath she has found is Char and he ain't gonna help you with those. He's gonna show you how to shoot. Well, as you pointed out, Char is also kind of in this state of arrested development. <laughs> he also has this desire to find like an extreme and simple solution to a problem so big he almost can't like articulate it. And when he's drinking and remembering Lala and thinking about her. Oh, in front of Nanai. <laughs> in front of Nanai. After they've had sex, I think, is the implication based on the fact that they are both in robes. I don't think Char knows what sex is. But he's willing to do it if it will make people be loyal to him. I don't know if I can include this. <laughs> um, but but he mentions that he, he needed Lala and he wanted her to tell him what he was feeling. He needed someone to teach him what feelings were and what it was that he was experiencing as a new type for someone to guide him 
And he felt like she could have been that person. And I think Char has closed himself off. One of the ironies of Char's character is that for such a dedicated proponent of new type theory, for a self-professed acolyte of his father who claims to believe that all of humanity needs to um, become new types by traveling into space, Char himself is actually very, very weak as new types go. Certainly he has that ability, but he like barely registers on the scale of power that we see in Gundam. I think a lot of that is that he has closed himself off. He has, whether consciously or not, shut himself away from other people's feelings because they make him feel icky and he doesn't know what to do with them. And they sure have a lot of feelings for him. I got to hear the dubbed version of that song on the train. It was great. The not dubbed version is also pretty intense. Uh, <laughs> but thinking in particular about Char and Quest, but really Char and, and everyone in his orbit, he's so good at figuring out what it is they want from him, but he never actually understands any of the underlying part of it or says he doesn't or doesn't want to. <laughs> Sounds really antisocial to me, but okay. <laughs> I mean, he, he basically just constantly manipulates everybody all the time. Like habitually, reflexively. I mean, there's that bit at the end where Amuro is like, Quest was clearly looking for a father figure and I couldn't be that. And Shar's like, oh, is that what she wanted? <laughs> huh, I didn't realize. Even though he's like been behaving that way toward her. Right, he clearly correctly identified that on some level because all the, the like patting her on the head and telling her what a good girl she is. I don't know, he also kissed her on the hand a whole bunch. He did, Ugh. and that charmed her immensely. And he keeps telling her all of these things. Like, when she first tells him, I love you, he's like, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> that's the one true thing he says in the movie. Please, no. <laughs> but then she says, I would do anything for you. And he's like, oh, well, in that case, okay. I'm willing to tell you that I will cut Nanai and Lala out of my life. <laughs> Well, and he, he does the same thing with Nanai. He's like, oh, after this is over, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And also dodges the important question. Nanai says, I'll do whatever you tell me to do as long as you reassure me that you love me. And he says, I need you. Oh, Lord. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's all, all these statements that are like implied. If a normal person with empathy said them, then you'd be like, well, clearly that's what that means. Gaslight King! <laughs> now we've drifted onto Char, which is natural because all of these characters are closely connected, but let's go back to Quest for a little bit. Um, oh wait, did you notice that he, he changes her name? Oh, I think she comes up with the pseudonym because her father is the like vice minister of foreign affairs or whatever. Oh, okay. And so uh, if she showed up and she was like, hey, I'm Quest Pariah. Oh, that'd be super bad. But also, like, wouldn't wouldn't they know that, like, I don't know. I feel like they would know that's her. But yeah, that it's it's just an interesting name change to change from, like, Pariah meaning outsider uh, to, like, Quest Air, like the freer version of whatever she could be. I want to go back to the conversation you mentioned earlier, Shar, when you talked about Quest saying that's why 
parents fight. Yes. She says this in response to Char's line about the people of Earth, their souls being weighed down by gravity. Yes. And I thought this was so interesting because I think if you asked Char, what are the actual empirical effects of soul weighed down by gravity disease? <laughs> Probably parents fighting with each other would not even be in the top hundred things on his list. Probably number one on the list is Amuro won't kiss me. Uh, <laughs> And, and then it continues from there, mostly about Amaro. Yeah, well, I mean, like, if you if you watch this too rapidly, it definitely seems like she's talking about um, them as a couple fighting. <laughs> yeah, one, one gets that sense. That's how, like, part of me wanted to take it. I was like, obviously, these two are couples. I, I think that intention is there. I do, I do think we're meant to connect that line to that scene of Amaro and Char fighting immediately afterwards. Yeah. But I bring this up because I'd like to highlight how this notion of the soul being weighed down by gravity is so vague that it can really explain any problem you have. <laughs> ah, yes, the prototypical space hysteria. And so naturally, for Quest, her obsession is the tumult in her household, the fighting between her parents, her dad's affair. Those are the things that like obsess her. And so when she thinks about this vague malady that afflicts the Earth sphere, she immediately goes to that specific problem that she has. And so one can imagine that this is how everybody who listens to Shar feels, <laughs> that he speaks in these vagaries into which you can fill in your own ideas uh, about what the problem is. Yep. Well, and that they both have this sort of myopia, this very excusable in a 13-year-old child and much less excusable in a 34-year-old man <laughs> attitude of sort of their own problems being the problems that afflict everyone. Quest superimposes all of her parents' negative qualities over the entire population of the Earth. Her parents are bad, and they are earthnoids, and therefore all earthnoids are hypocrites and phonies <laughs> and egotists, and the earth should be destroyed because of that. <laughs> My parents were mean. Earth should blow up. Well, there's a powerful desire to lash out there, to punish, to, to inflict pain in response to any perceived slight. And Quest continues this after she's been slapped by Nanai when she goes and runs to Shar like a, a child who has just been told no running to the other parent to see if the other one will say yes. And when she gets to Shar, she says, Nanai was mean to me. I want you to punish her. I want you to prove to me that I'm more important to you than Nanai. <laughs> Basically. I think that, um, so to the point of speaking in vagaries, if we're talking about these people that have to constantly feel the nonsense of everyone else, you've got to divide it up somehow. And I feel like that's half like politician training and half like, I don't have a name for this awful empath feeling. And that must be how it feels. Like you just trying to get Lalo to be like, hey, this is what the feeling is. And he's like, nope, I don't have any idea. We're going to keep it vague. Technically, it's something no one else will ever feel, but it is technically what everyone is feeling. And I think that's just the utter irony of being a new type. <laughs> And especially for these children or quests, like, especially around like 14 or so, punishment is just a word, you know, quest has no understanding of the actual scale of what could happen, what it would mean to like, quote unquote, punish Earth via Char's means. 
But especially as like so incredibly removed and privileged as she is, she couldn't possibly understand like a nuclear winter better than like overactive air conditioner or anything like that. <laughs> Just like, oh no, so you mean it's going to be cold for a little while? Why don't they put on their coats? Like, no, that's not what that means. Well, she has this conversation with Shar in the limo. <laughs> When she says, are you really going to destroy the earth? And he says, no, I'm just giving it a rest. <laughs> she's like, oh, okay. With no examination of what that means. Shark's going to take a nap. It's going to be fine. She's like, oh, yeah, like I take naps. Like, it's just, like I said, the complete irony of like knowing everyone, but like only having your like microcosm of your world to understand the larger world through with no one to guide you through. I know Tom keeps redirecting us back to quests, but I... Every time we say something about her, I think of some companion thing about Char. <laughs> it's almost as if the role of the two in the story is to reveal things about the other one. Uh, but our Char, <laughs> you mentioned... <laughs> Dr. Char. Dr. Char, you mentioned that desire to punish. And I realized after a couple of watch-throughs of this movie, it's possible that one of the most honest things Shar says is when he says, I'm not trying to change the world because he gives all these people reasons. He makes up all this ideology and it frequently conflicts with other statements. And we get the sense that he's just saying what he thinks will convince people or what they want to hear. And that ultimately he isn't trying to change anything. He's trying to punish the world. <laughs> That's what he wants. He wants the earth to pay. Because <laughs> he says to Quest at one point, oh, you must have some terrible memories of the earth to want to destroy it. Because in his mind, he has some bad memories of the earth. He has some bad feelings about it and he wants to punish it. And Axis. He mentions at one point when they're breaking up Axis, like, take your horrible memories with you. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah, this actually isn't ideological at all for him. It's just this desire to punish, this desire for vengeance. Only the difference being, unlike Quest, he has an entire fleet at his disposal. <laughs> I can actually do the thing. Right. People yeah. willing to empower him to actually punish a planet full of people. Now, this is not to say that Char doesn't hold or at least express ideological positions, but when you have a character defined by his habitual deceptions, who spends this whole movie lying to the people around him, and who has precious few moments of interiority, it then becomes impossible for the audience to know what he believes. We can speculate, but we have to acknowledge that we are speculating. And which pieces of evidence we choose to focus on when drawing our conclusions about him can lead us to radically different assumptions about what his ideology is, and what the balance in his motivations is between belief and personal resentment. And if you focus on his relationship to Amaro, the things he says to Amaro, his lines about not wanting to change the world and his flashbacks, it's easy to reach the conclusion that he is motivated almost entirely by those feelings of resentment and not the more ideological things that he says earlier in the movie. I just think it's funny because it's going to be like the earth itself or like the gravity, anything. It's always, it's going to be the endless goalpost for if I blow this up, it will make me feel better. And even if he was successful in blowing up the earth, 
I mean, and he's not technically trying to blow up the earth. I know. <laughs> Make it sleep. Um, I'm not going to feel better. So he's just going to keep putting it onto something that's utterly unattainable because it'll always be the next thing. So it's interesting to see like quests at that stage in the very beginning, like if I blow up X amount of things in the virtual reality room, I'll be cool and better and feel better. Or if I connect with Amar or Shar, I'll be cool and better and feel better. And so Shar is just that time is like way further down the line. It's like, if I blow up this earth, I'll feel better. And then when he doesn't, he'll be like, I got to blow up another earth. Yeah, in some ways, it feels as though Gune might have the clearest vision of Shar in that he like identifies that this is just a destructive impulse. Mm-hmm. And he is skeptical when Shar tells him, oh, I'm not interested in quests. Like, I just want to fulfill my mission. And anyway, Nanai has been good to me and I'm not going to abandon Nanai. And Gune is like, well... We'll see if he was telling the truth or not. He doesn't just take it at face value in the way a lot of other people around Shar accept the things that he says to them. Actually, the um, the unknowability of Shar is a major point in this movie. It's full of examples of people speculating about Shar's motives, uh, either directly to Shar or to each other, and Shar, you know, constantly lying about everything. There was a point I noticed in particular about 45 minutes into the movie uh, where there's just a succession of scenes one after another. This is right after the train singing scene. Mm-hmm. But then immediately after that, Quest and Shar talk about his motivations. Then Nanai speculates about his motivations. Then Gune speculates about his <laughs> motivations. Then Mirai speculates about his motivations. And then Shar gives his big speech. It's like bracketed by these two very public facing uh, instances of the Shar persona when he's on the train and when he's giving the big speech. And then in the middle, we have all of these people who know him trying to figure out what the heck this guy's deal is. (laughs) Hilariously, the enduring popularity of Shar among Gundam fans really probably boils down to the same thing that attracts Quest to him, which is that uh, people like power, mystery, and damage. Like, <laughs> he is a tragic figure. I, yeah, it's it's a whole lot of I bet I could change him syndrome. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and he's so, um, he's, it's not that he's a blank slate, right? Like, he is something. There is something there. But because his presentation is so wildly varying um, and his his affect is so blunted, it's very easy to project onto him whatever set of beliefs and emotions is most appealing to you. Oh, yeah. And then, like, the psychic ability to kind of know, like, if he ever wanted to, he could know your exact feelings. But he just wants to sit through, like, are you going to be helpful to me or are you not? Shars this wonderful interactive Rorschach um, to give you whatever you want, whatever interpretation you want, and kind of look like it just enough. Yeah. Um, Gune pretty much flatly states, it's not implied, that oh, yeah. Char has been sleeping with a succession of two young-for-him women. Well, girls. Oh, yeah. And what exactly that means is unclear, but since it's being directed at Quest, my assumption is that he means, like young teens. 
And when Nanai is feeling jealous, when she is angry about Shar's apparent connection to Quest or attraction to Quest, she says, I thought he had changed his ways when he took his father's name, when he took up his father's mantle. And she says, I can't believe he fell for that brat. Right. So clearly he has a history of being involved with very young girls. And these girls heard him say Lala's name in his sleep is about as explicit as you could be. <laughs> it's very possible that Gune is lying or he's repeating rumors that he's heard that aren't based on fact. This is a movie where it's very hard to know what is true. It is, but I think there's going to be an amount of unrest. And I think that he finds this level of discussion about his sexual promise to be um, adequate to maintain them as, as a fleet. Um, like a reputation that he needs to have or? More like, you know, there's going to be unrest. It's Machiavelli to be like, oh, yes, they love and fear me. But like, there's going to be an amount of dislike that's going to happen. And he doesn't care. He strikes me as someone who wouldn't care about people talking about whether or not he slept with these women. So that's probably the topic that they can discuss without him caring. Mm. Mm, I see. Also, though. I would believe that it was a rumor Gune heard rather than something he knows for a fact. Yeah, that'd be awkward if he knew it for a fact, man. Well, I mean, he's a he's a trusted guard. He could have seen something. But yeah, yeah. also, I don't think he lies about Char ever Gune? in this movie. I think Gune is very honest with Quest about Char and she just doesn't care. Certainly there is that scene later on when Quest bursts into a control room and she demands to know if she's just a replacement for Lala. And the, the movie is very crew. careful to show all of the other officers just like, look, side eye at this interaction. Uh, and you can tell that they are just like the It's like the gif of Homer into the into the head, just like, no. <laughs> but also that they are very curious that they know or have some idea of who Lala is. And they also kind of want to know the answer to this question. And I read a certain amount of like judgment in their eyes. They're curious, but not in a good way. They're curious, but like if I were ever asked that question, I would be dead. <laughs> but it, it very much feels like, ah, here is confirmation that there are rumors about Shar. People around him have heard of this Lala girl. And there is suspicion about this relationship with Quest. Gune also brings up the point, and it's fairly easy to believe, but that the relationship with Nanai is about maintaining appearances within the fleet. That when Shar puts an arm around Nanai, when they spend the night together, or... She sure is the best fleet beard. Sort of. And also sort of mom like when when they do embrace the vibe to me is much more like oh you must be so tired from the burdens on you let me take care of you lordy yeah if we were to give freudian terms to the top three neo-zeon people i would put uh nanai as our super ego and uh quest as our id and char as our super bumbling ego very very very, very close to it, but like not quite there. Been in the world too long. So uh, I'm wondering if you can just sort of explain those terms real quick. Yeah, absolutely. Especially because in the movie, people bring up the term ego several times. Oh, when do they bring it up? 
Well, Shar and Amaro are arguing about their different positions, and Shar is talking about how he has to be the one to discipline Earth or whatever. And Amaro says, that's just ego. And then when when Lala says that she wants to look after Amaro and Shar forever, but Amaro says, that's ego. And then <laughs> towards the end of the movie, in the fight with Chan, Hathaway, and Quess, mm-hmm. Quess accuses Hathaway of being an egotistic man <laughs> and that part of why she's helping attack Earth is so that Earth won't make more egotistic men like him. For the New Zealand's super ego is probably working with the, the outer world. So Nanai's helping to keep up appearances of how Shar is being perceived. She's constantly telling him literally what to do and when to deploy. So that would be the role that I picture her in. Um, it would be like your innermost desires or your base instincts. And we get that a whole lot in Quest. She's a wonderful, unfiltered young woman who's going to keep asking awkward and weird questions. Um, and then Char, uh, ego, ego interfaces between these two to try and reach a healthy balance for the larger organism. Um, and that would be where I put Char doing the best he can for the Neozeonites. Except I, I feel like even for Neozeon, it's just one more thing for him to manipulate to his own ends. Mm-hmm. It's just a way for him to have the power to act out. <laughs> I do think ultimately one of the things he and Amuro have in common is they're both interested in self-sacrifice. That ultimately they are willing slash want to die in the pursuit of their competing impulses or goals. I think somewhat inadvertently, you've highlighted the distinction that I would make between the two of them, which is that Amaro is willing to die to save the world and Shar wants to die. Well, Shar has a whole like savior complex that he is going to commit this horrible, necessary evil so that other people don't have to. And then there won't be any war and people won't have to do evil things anymore and people won't suffer anymore. So Shar is tired. And he says... (laughs) pretty explicitly at the end of his speech that when the war is over, when there's self-determination for space noids, he can join his father and his father is dead. Mm -hmm. Listen, I know what it's like to be 34 and tired. (laughs) (laughs) And you don't even have a space fleet. I wish I had a space fleet. Then I could solve all of my problems. And the the line about Amaro, I'm about to do something extremely wicked. Oh my God, that delivery. It was so funny. And that he wants Amaro to sense him. He wants Amaro to stop him, but so much of their conflict might come down to a sense of looking in a mirror, looking in into an alternate universe at what you might have been if you had made different choices or if your life had panned out a little differently. Yeah, absolutely wondering where that branch in their lives like shifted them. I wonder, it's like, cause Amaro grew up in a colony, correct? Mm-hmm. So you can't even say that like he grew up in a different context of like, you know, gravity, disease on the soul thing. The funny thing about all of this is that Shar actually grew up on earth. Shar was born in a colony, but grew up on Earth. Amaro was born on Earth, but grew up in a colony. <laughs> Genetic weight. Genetic gravity disease. Um, <laughs> interesting. 
That's probably what Shara wants to know. He's like, hey, what was that big decision in your life that made you decide to be this way? I'm just curious so that I know not to do that and I can continue to blow up Earth. It's curious. Shar is willing to take on leadership. We've had a sense in previous Gundam shows that he doesn't like it, but he sees it as a means to an end and so he's willing to do it. Amuro seems to have dodged that substantially. It's not that... I mean, he's what, a captain or a lieutenant or something? So he's a pretty low-ranking officer, and he's certainly not part of the Federation government. And so we do have some sympathy when Char rants and raves at Amuro that he's wasting his talents and being naive. Foundationally, Char thinks that because he has new type powers, he is superior to other people. And because he has these powers and is superior... It is his right, his destiny, to be the leader, to make the decisions for everybody. And the fact that Amuro is even more powerful than he is, and yet rejects the notion that his superior power makes him superior, is a direct challenge to Shar's whole worldview. So, like, power level-wise, Amuro could be his dad, and he's rejecting him? Hmm... He certainly wanted, from pretty early on, to be allied with Amuro. And though it's never stated that way, you know, if if Lala, as a more powerful new type, was supposed to be his mom, then there is a, a theoretical possibility there. The thing standing in the way is that Char almost never talks about his mother. There's no sense that he knows much of anything about her versus... His father was a a very famous, powerful politician Mm -hmm. about whom there's an entire mythology and who was assassinated very dramatically. And so uh, he sort of he has a father figure, even if he never really knew him or had a relationship with him. But if we go back to first Gundam, Char's father, we find out, is the like prophet of new typism. In addition to his political demands for autonomy for space noids, this is also the guy who comes up with the theory that new types are going to happen years before they actually start appearing. And then in First Gundam, Amuro is like the new type. He is the emerging proof that Shar's father's prophecy was true. Okay, I'm going to have a dumb question. So Shar's not a new type? Char is a new type, but he developed later. He didn't start to feel his powers until the very end of the show, whereas Amuro started feeling them much earlier. Okay. And so, for Char, Amuro represents the fulfillment of his father's legacy. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. And then another example of how Amuro is sort of a reflection slash opposite of Char where Shar is willing to take on this moral injury, but is pretty caught up in his own survival. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Amuro, on the other hand, makes clear at several points that he's willing to sacrifice his own life for other people's lives and would very much like it if nobody else had to make those sacrifices. Like, Yeah, they're just complete opposite ends of the spectrum of, like, don't they say it a million times, like, this is Char's burden? Yeah. Char's burden is to, like, know and feel and enact all this murder, and Amuro is, like, 
if you just killed me instead, I would be so happy. Um, yeah, well, there's that point where Gune holds Keira, another pilot, hostage uh, and is trying to make Amuro give himself up. And Amuro fully intends to, but he's got these like psychically controlled bits, they call them. The tunnel? Tunnels? Funnels. 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 Yep. Yeah. And his like subconscious desire to live guides the funnels to uh, defend him. On a conscious level, he entirely meant to give himself up to save Kara, even though, frankly, he's like probably more important <laughs> to what's happening, and he definitely shouldn't give the enemy his brand new mobile suit. <laughs> but he would have been willing to do that to save her life. Yeah. And then similarly at the very end, even though it takes the emotion and will and desire of all of these people to save the Earth, when all of those other mobile suits come to help him, he is so worried for them. And he want, like yeah. he's willing to risk his own life to avert this asteroid, but he doesn't want anybody else to have to. Oh, he's like, Don't, what are you doing? I'm doing this for you, even though the action is impossible. Like it would have been impossible without all those other people. It's just right. this mm -hmm. wonderful disconnect of like, I, I am enacting my ideals so no one else has to die, even though they're literally impossible. Um, but you're here making it very real for me. I hate you so much. Like Char, he wants to do it alone. Yeah. I mean, like, it's a different type of burden. Can I go back to the lore for a minute? Mm-hmm. So Amaro is the manifestation of, like, what would have pleased his dad, essentially? Yeah. <laughs> we think. Uh, the other aspect of it is that because of how his father died uh, pretty abruptly uh, from a suspected poisoning, uh, it's not super well fleshed out exactly what his philosophies were or exactly what he wanted the new world to be. Does Char know that, though? Char has clearly constructed his idea of what his dad wanted. Right. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm, this is where you can put my throw-a-table noise. Um, so Amaro is just like, is what his father would have wanted slash the type of father he wants, and then he cuts him in the groin. He also yep. shoots him in the mouth. Uh <laughs> so he can't talk anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're having this big debate, and the debate ends with Char like, blowing a hole in Amaro's faceplate that requires Amro to put a bandage directly across his mouth. It's all, they're not being subtle about this. Shut up! Oh. While, while we're talking about the visual symbolism, <laughs> at the end, when Char is in the little escape pod, mm -hmm. I noticed that it looked a little bit like a haro. Like it looked as if Amro's mobile suit was carrying a haro. And haro is frequently a symbol of childhood in this show and of sort of a childish separation from like war and violence. We talked about that a bunch in Zeta Gundam, but it recurs in exactly the same way here. Hathaway carries the Haro right up until the moment he decides to go into battle himself. Yeah. And that's when he abandons the Haro. Yeah. <laughs> but that um that Char is a child in a lot of ways. And so here he is the Haro. So he has regressed back to childhood after, you know, um, sterilizing his father slash lover. Yes. <laughs> it's also somewhat womb-like 
And Char, we see him basically like curl up into the fetal position, blind, senseless inside this space orb. Helpless Mm -hmm. into the void of space where Lava is. Essentially like Lava's space womb. Something like that, yeah. Gross. Why is this so gross for a show about robots? (laughs) Because it's not really about robots, Char. It's about mothers. I know. Um... I want to point out something that occurred to me while we were talking about the distinction between Amaro and Char and how both of them want to take everything upon themselves, but in very different ways. And it's kind of their relationship to what happened with Lala. Mm. Because we see Char, both in the course of the movie and it's referred to elsewhere, trying to recreate Lala. He is looking for another Lala. And it's worth pointing out that with Lala, too... He gave her romantic signals to assist in his control of her, I guess, Mm -hmm. even though retroactively he's describing her as a potential mother. Yeah, he certainly does edit his own past quite a lot. I mean, does he know how to interact with a mother figure? Like, I think I think it's interesting trying to differentiate like romantic versus uh, maternal interactions. And it's so hard when, you know, mother wasn't there or mother was very poorly constructed and you don't know how to interact with that. And I think that's just, that seems to be a theme that this creator likes with everyone. It's like, you sure had a mom or else you wouldn't exist, but like, God forbid you interact with her or learn how to interact with uh, a woman in that way healthily, you know? Yeah. Yeah, this is a common problem for emotionally underdeveloped humans. It's just like, I can't differentiate um, maternal affection from romantic affection. So mm. I'm like, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We'll never know because mm-hmm. he'll never be able to differentiate that either. <laughs> sure. So gross. Um, but differentiated from Shar's desire to recreate Lala is Amaro, who seems really interested in preventing what happened before from happening again. And I think we see this when he's talking to Hathaway. And this is when Amaro tells Hathaway, you know, like, Char is manipulating quests, and she's going to die. Like, that's what happens to the people that Char manipulates. And this is when Hathaway says, she won't die, I'm going to save her, etc., etc. <laughs> and he goes, oh, you, I was you once. <laughs> exactly. I think Amaro is seeing the same thing that happened, the same triad between himself, Char, and Lala, happening again with Hathaway, quests, and Char. Amaro, because he's kind of emotionally stunted himself and very busy at the moment, isn't (laughs) actually able to prevent this from happening. But you can tell he's trying to warn Hathaway. He's trying to be like, dude, this happened to me. It's going to happen to you. You need to brace yourself for it. Could all of the events of this movie have been prevented if Sharon Amaro had simply been willing to share Lala? (sighs) Oh, man. That's what Lala seems to want. When she appears to Amro in that dream sequence, she's like, no, I just want to be with both of you. And she was so mad about it. Yeah, we get very few hints about the underlying turmoil for Amro and mostly through Chan. She yeah. mentions to him that sometimes he's distant and angry. And I'm like, oh, you mean your boyfriend <laughs> who was a child soldier is maybe kind of traumatized? Yeah. <laughs> and probably getting, like, space messages from space ghosts? Neat. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, because, like, um, is the one who accidentally kills her, right? Hathaway, Hathaway intentionally kills, kills Chan. Chan on nope, nope, Lala. Oh, oh, yes. Yes. He's trying to kill Char. Uh-huh. She gets in the way. Yeah. And he 
That's an interesting reaction. It's not like remorse. It's like, I hate you. I'm mad at you. I didn't think he was mad at Lala. I thought he was mad at Char. And he's mad that even now, Lala still clings to Char. I suppose I thought it was somewhere in the middle. There was considerably more remorse on Amaro's part right after it happened. Ah, uh, okay. I think the fact that Lala has effectively continued to exist in the ether of space has lessened that somewhat. Because she's still around, right? Like, Yeah, I think she says that. Well, I'm, I'm, it's not really a question. She is <laughs> still around. Or she's just a hallucination that Amaro is seeing because of his drama. There's a lot of space geese, and he's interpreting that as Lala. <laughs> it seems both that he wants her to choose a side, and also that he resents the hold that she continues to have on him after all of this time. Yeah. That they had this very intense empathic connection. Probably the most intense empathic connection we see any two people have. He makes a comment about how it's not right for her to keep him to herself. And so he clearly feels like his connection to Lala affects his ability to connect with alive physical women <laughs> and have and have other relationships. And he clearly likes Chan a lot. They have a good relationship. They made a robot baby together. <laughs> they have a relatively healthy relationship by Gundam standards. Yeah. Top five for sure. It's true. He didn't have like uh, Lala dreams until he went to space. Yeah, well, and he and Chan have like fairly easy, comfortable looking physical affection with each other. They're they're honest with each other. Yes. Uh, that's a big deal for Gundam. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I mean, they spend time together, mm -hmm. which puts them ahead of Bright and Mirai. Aww. And Chan is not possessive or jealous. She is, in fact, completely bewildered when Quest starts attacking her about Amaro. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I here? Well, you see, I am a technician and this is my job. Yeah. No, they are pretty healthy by Gundam standards. And it is funny because she calls him out and is like, you're cold sometimes. Any other duo would like slap her. But like, he's like, oh, am I? I guess I am. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I it's it's going to be a perpetually complicated thing that he has with Lala, I'm sure. We angry space ghost forever that will continually tie him to Char. She also says how horrible it is for her to be like trapped in this existence for all eternity. Yeah. She just does. wants them to join her so that they can all go off and not exist anymore. All of these characters just want to die. Oh, they all Lord. they all crave oblivion. Um, <laughs> the oblivion of space. No, instead she gets Chan and they can have like whatever space goes tea together. So one of the most famous lines in this movie, certainly one of the most commonly repeated and memed, is when Char says of Lala that she was a woman who could have been a mother to me. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think the um, the motherhood thing actually runs through the whole movie. It's not just Char and Lala in that moment. I think there's a lot of very subtle and some more overt um, stuff that really focuses the movie on mothers and motherhood and the pain of separation therefrom. You mean the absolute need of one for all of them? And there's only one and she's stuck on her? <laughs> That's true. Only one like actual mother shows up in the movie Mirai who is on earth 
and to whom the movie keeps like cutting in um in crucial highly emotional exciting moments we check in with her constantly <laughs> remember earth here's earth i can't believe you're ignoring chan's psycho frame baby i'm working towards <laughs> it I know. Um, because i was going to talk about all of the the pseudo mothers well who appear. so it's interesting that we leave mirai our only mother on earth and she's cut to any time you need to know like or have an emotional feeling about everyone struggling on earth or the idea of like an asteroid coming because you kind of forget you're like space is bright and shiny and there's mm-hmm. robots there and then like oh there's just like big sad toddled orphans on earth going oh no earth or mother earth yeah exactly that's what i was gonna say you know she's kept there to remind you like earth gaia mother mm-hmm. be like yep i'm i'm the one capable of life and the cold void of space is where all the stuff's happening can you pay attention to me sometimes so mother earth is the largest of the pseudo mothers who appear in the movie <laughs> and i do think the you know humanity leaving the earth going off into space is metaphorically the child leaving home um or even just like leaving the womb and going out into the cold, unfriendly, hostile environment of the world. Yep. The very first scene in the movie is uh, Chan going to check on the new Gundam. And I think the new Gundam is often presented as a kind of child created by Chan and Amuro together, although we learn later on that uh, Shar was involved too. So yeah. take that for what you will. <laughs> um, From Anaheim, which is the city I am from anyway (laughs) and of course from that we then go to quest and her conflict with uh kathy who it is made very clear is not her mother despite that sort of relationship oh they leave her on earth too yep they do they do leave kathy the other mother on earth moms go to earth dads go to space And yeah, the first major thing that happens with Hathaway is that he is separated from his mother. Um, Shar exists in a state of constant separation from his mother. And although it's not in the movie, we do know from Amaro's history that he had a dramatic, emotionally fraught separation from his mother as well. But there are other sort of um, more subtle things that may or may not be conscious references to this. Um, For instance, when... Amuro and Char are having their like Jeep versus horseback race (laughs) and they run into a herd of of cattle. Mm -hmm. If you look at it, every one of those is either a female cow or a calf. There's no steers. Not at all. Well, and when they first see each other, I don't know if you noticed this, but Hathaway drops Haro and Haro sits between them for a moment. (laughs) No, don't do it. That's the um, moment where Quest gets knocked into Hathaway's lap. Mm -hmm. That's when the Haro gets knocked out. (laughs) And I get so mad at everyone not wearing seatbelts or headgear. And I'm like, ah, the concussions. Just be glad they actually have airbags in this one. Yeah, I I was so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God. (laughs) Anyway. Then they introduced baby seats into the into the Gundams, and I got real mad. <laughs> I was going right to the to the jump seat actually, because I think that scene when they launch the new Gundam for the first time, and Chan is sitting in the seat in front of Amuro, I got a strong like birth feeling from that. 
hmm. that like the new Gundam is being born. And you see like, it's very difficult for Chan she, during that launching she faints. sequence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought she like willingly went to sleep. Oh, she oh. like faints? I assumed that it was because she's, she's an engineer, right? Not a pilot. And so she's not used to the G forces. Oh. And so I thought she passed out. She like has a sort of groan of effort. Yeah. And then passes out. <laughs> But you need to be awake during birth. It's after the new Gundam has left the um, launch catapult or birth canal <laughs> when uh, she passes out. Oh. Exhausted from the experience. Neat. And then this last one is like, I'm not 100% certain on this, but once I heard it, I couldn't unhear it. No. In the scene, so Chan has that T, right? The psycho frame T that she's carrying around, the, the sample. And she always wears it like on her hip in a position where if you look at it from the side, it looks kind of like where her uterus is. I mean, the T shape is the shape of a uterus. Yeah. And in the scene when uh, Rezin is attacking the rock hylum and Chan is controlling one of the gun turrets and fighting back, there's a moment where the T sort of like glows and pulses and Chan kind of reacts with surprise. Uh, but yeah. it's very quick and very subtle. But when the, when the T pulses and right before she shoots Rezin down, the tea makes a noise, and it really sounds to me like a baby crying. Like, that's going to be uh, a job for a sound tech to, like, play back to you in reverse. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, it's not a slam dunk. I wouldn't say 100%, but God, once I started thinking about it that way, I, I, can't, I can't hear anything else. I don't know. It's either a uterus or it's a, um, an IUD. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I thought of. I think in Shar, there is this strong sense of resentment from the pain of separation from the mother and a desire to um, free himself of attachment to the mother figure. And to destroy Earth is to lash out at the mother that he feels like has rejected him and also to sever that connection, to cut the umbilical cord. I guess this unhealthy obsession with how Earth is ungrateful could be that perpetual umbilical cord for him. Well, and that Earth is polluted, that the purity of Earth has been sullied. Oh, so we've got like a Madonna horror complex for all of Earth. Yes. Rude. (laughs) (laughs) And that his anger is specifically directed at the people on Earth who are like taking the Earth's resources, taking the mother's attention. So his anger at the people on Earth is like his anger at a father figure in an Oedipus kind of way. No, it sounds more like anger at siblings. Mm. Mm. If you wanted it to be like a father figure, like how dare they invade Earth and take her resources, not how dare they like take her attention and like dirty her up. Mm -hmm. One of the joke jobs they keep giving to the people is like, oh, yeah, there's always people to clean up the beaches. That's always a job. I thought that was hilarious Mm -hmm. because, like, he got real mad. Like, how dare you make me take care of the place that I want to live on? Um, So it's more like a a stewardship as opposed to, like, an invading and claiming sort of way. And the resentment of the mother figure and resentment of the sense of attachment playing out as this idea of humanity can only evolve into its more perfect state by leaving the mother behind completely. So humanity can only grow up if they leave mom, so then I will take mom away from them? Yeah, basically. I will make it so that they cannot have mom. Oh, yay. 
So they will never know what emotions are. <laughs> well, if I don't know what emotions are, then no one else should. Then I'll feel better somehow. <laughs> like in Zeta, there is a letter that shows up on screen in oh, this movie, yep. which is written in English. Um, the letter in Zeta gave us the famous line, Lieutenant Quattro, he is a Char. And in Zeta, they wrote Char the way we write it today, C-H-A-R. But in this movie, when they write Char's name in that letter, they spell it the way you do, Doctor. <gasps> I've been found out! No wonder you understand Char so well, Char. Ah, Char, it's all the truth. <laughs> Are you a like, muscular blonde man from space? Yes, that's my secret. <laughs> With an entire fleet at my disposal, trying to make everyone psychologically healthy by killing mom. <laughs> <laughs> what else does that letter say? I can't remember. The letter is about how the technology for the psychoframe came from Neo Zeon, which Chan doesn't believe because logically, why would Neo Zeon give them this very powerful and completely working piece of technology? And we find out later. You know, Char says it's because he wants a fair fight with Amuro. I think ultimately it's really because, as we've said, Char kind of wants Amuro to stop him slash has a death wish. And so I want to make sure I sterilize him and we're on equal footing. That's what. In a way, this comes back to Char trying to recreate the circumstances of the war 14 years ago. He is, doesn't it? So they go into that uh mining area on the thing and they also have a gun battle there just like they did 14 years ago he makes sure that amuro is on par with him so that they can have the the big blowout fight that they had 14 years ago the one that made his life feel so meaningful and complete and he's been chasing that high ever since <sighs> it also weirdly makes the psycho frame kind of both of their child and it doesn't happen in a very deep way, but it's one of the only times we see Char actually feel and understand Amaro's feelings, like with the mediation of Chan's psycho frame baby, of Char and Amaro's psycho frame baby, he can feel those feelings. Listen, Chan and Amaro birthed the baby, and now um, Char's giving it playtime. And he, he says, that he can sense all the feelings, but he isn't feeling fear like he thought he would feel. He's feeling warmth and comfort and- Mom like, feelings. Mom feelings. Womb feelings. And you know, he gets those feelings of warmth when he's in the space womb, hurtling towards the earth mother womb. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> Too much wombs. <laughs> The sibling metaphor is an interesting one because you can look at Char uh, as like the older sibling looking at his younger siblings who are still sort of clinging to their mother. And he's thinking, A, how dare they? Uh, and B, they need to grow up. True. And the only way they'll grow up is if I force them to leave mom. Oh. And the only way I can force them to leave mom is by killing her or just putting her in a freezer for a couple of decades. Why do you keep bringing me back to Freud, man? 
we have good evidence, I think, just from the writing of these shows and movies that uh, Tomino was very interested in what Freud had to say. Cool. So this is just the theme he takes for everyone in space. Good to know that old tropes don't die in space, but a lot of women do. And now, as part of a collaboration between Mobile Suit Breakdown and Mateo of the anime research blog Animetudes, Nina and Mateo have put together profiles for some of the animators behind Char's counterattack. Last week in the episode intro, I mentioned that one of my favorite things about making MSB has been all the cool people we've met because of it, both in person, when that was still a thing, and in the online community. One of those people is Matteo Watts, aka Anime Tudes. He researches and blogs about anime history, analysis, and theory on his own website and Twitter, linked in the show notes, and for the site fullfrontal.moe, M-O-E. Even though we tackle all kinds of different research, trust us, we are very aware of the gaps in our knowledge. One of our weaknesses is definitely technical animation knowledge, the nitty-gritty of how animation works, what different technical details mean, and how particular effects are achieved. For example, I can tell you how a scene feels to me, but I can't tell you what the animators did to achieve it. (laughs) Second is the anime industry. We have researched particular people, studios, works, but the anime industry is a vast and arcane web of connections, influences, lineages. So we looked around on Twitter for who has that knowledge, whose writing we like, and who we'd like to work with and might like to work with us. And that's how this piece came to be. This week, I'll be delving into a couple of staff profiles for people who worked on Char's counterattack. What was their background? What was the rest of their career like? Can I find any other entertaining information about them? While I've done some biographical research on the staff in question, much of this piece is paraphrased and excerpted from a paper Matteo wrote on the history and production of Char's counterattack focusing on the production team and on CCA's place in the so-called realist movement in anime. The full article is now available on his website, so be sure to check it out. And a quick reminder, at MSB, we've decided to render Japanese names as they are in Japanese, family name first, then given name. The team for CCA, even in major roles, was much larger than in comparable movies of the time, probably a product of the very tight production schedule eight months at best to complete the entire movie. Matteo walks through how he reaches that number based on design documents and dates that certain people join the team. To illustrate just how large the team was, here's a helpful comparison. The movie Akira had one animation director and one assistant. CCA had seven animation directors and four assistants quote, among the highest counts in the entire decade, and described by animation critic Oguro Yuichi as a number unthinkable for its time. They were so crunched that photography split into a day shift and a night shift so that they could work round the clock. 58 key animators are credited in this film. It's remarkable that it turned out so well. (laughs) Nagano did many of the initial designs. He and Tomino knew each other from collaborating on Heavy Metal Elgheim and Zeta Gundam, 
and Tomino recommended him for the mecha design position on CCA, but Sunrise and Bandai nixed him. They were disappointed with the sales of toys based off of his previous designs, and not confident in the marketability of his work as merchandise. As far as I'm aware, this is a relatively recent revelation, which came from another mecha designer, Kobayashi Makoto, who was tweeting some dirt about the mecha design industry recently. And I've seen it hypothesized by some that it wasn't so much that the Elgheim kits weren't selling, but that because of the way Nagano had designed them, they were very expensive for Bandai to make, and so the profits were too low. I don't know if that's true. This is essentially third-hand speculation, but it is a possibility. The new mechanical designer was Izubuchi Yutaka. Inspired by the TV broadcast of the original space battleship Yamato, Izubuchi had wanted to work in the anime industry since childhood, and his debut was on 1978's Tosho Daimos, where he was responsible for enemy mecha design at just 20 years old. Like many in the industry, he was hired on the basis of some doujinshi, or fan comics, that he had made. By the early 80s, he was also drawing manga and working as an illustrator, but the bulk of his credits throughout his career have been for mechanical design, with a few for character, costume, and general design sprinkled in, and a couple of directing credits. Most notably, in addition to Gundam, he worked on Pat Labor, Super Sentai series, and Razephon. In an interview from Anime Expo 2006, Izubuchi said that his favorite mecha design he'd done for Gundam was the High Gog, and all the 3D designs for MS Igloo. He also mentioned that he begins designing new mecha from the face, and that in his newer work, he wants to harken back to robot shows of the 70s, shows like Tomino's Brave Riding that are unfamiliar to contemporary anime fans. In particular, he talks about feeling pigeonholed into mecha design, when what he really enjoys is character design, especially villains. There's also a sense that within Gundam, the formula is kind of set in stone, and if you try to change things up, there's a strongly negative fan reaction. And he gives turn A as an example of that. Don't worry, she hasn't been spoiled. She's just seen Izubuchi's comments. To turn back to CCA, although Izubuchi was the new mechanical designer, lots of designers submitted proposals for the new Gundam design, among them Nakazawa Kazunori, who would wind up an assistant animation director on the film, and Ano Hideaki. The production actually borrowed Anno from Gainax, and he was responsible for spaceship designs and other miscellaneous objects for Neo-Zeon. Also borrowed from Gainax, Masuo Shoichi did the same for the Federation side. Masuo, who passed away in 2017 at just 57 years old, had an incredibly busy career. After graduating Tokyo Institute of Design, he worked at Studio Giants, then as a freelancer, before founding Studio Graviton and later transferring to Gynex. It's interesting that he did design work on CCA, given that very few of his credits are for design. Masuo was mostly an animator, especially key animation, and a director. Mateo counts two Sunrise contributors as among the greatest character animators of all time, Yaz, who we've discussed before, and Kogawa Tomonori both representing different lineages and styles, but similar in their approach to realism and animation, grounded in how they depicted human anatomy and how they gave characters volume, creating a greater sense of occupying and moving in three-dimensional space. Kogawa had worked at Tatsunoko Pro and later founded Studio Bibo. It was one of his mentees and students from Bibo, 
Kitazume Hiroyuki, who slowly took on Yaz's role in Gundam, beginning with Mobile Suit Gundam Zeta. On Zeta, Kitazume was one of the most recurring animation directors, and by Double Zeta and CCA, he was also doing character design. Kitazume is another Tokyo Institute of Design graduate, and wanted to work at Bebo after seeing Kogawa's work on the anime film Farewell to Space Battleship Yamato. As a student, he supposedly hated robot anime, but under Kogawa started working on Sunrise's robot anime projects, and has worked on robot anime ever since. After doing in-betweens for the Space Runaway Ideon movie and the show Combat Mecha Zabungle, he was promoted to key animation for Aura Battler Dunbine. Then, on 1984's Heavy Metal Elgheim, he was entrusted with animation direction and had his first opportunity to work as a character designer. His work on Double Zeta and CCA further raised his profile and cemented his reputation and popularity as a character designer. His designs for Judo and Pudu won prizes at an industry and fan awards program. After Heavy Metal Elgheim, he left Bebo and with a few friends and colleagues founded Studio Pack, where he served as president slash managing director, an endeavor for which he put up half the starting capital himself and personally recruited many of the members. If I understand the wiki correctly, just three years later, Studio Pack was reorganized into Atelier Giga, which worked on one OVA in 1987, Relic Armor Legacium, which is described, in the Wikipedia at least, as both an artistic and business failure that left the company and Kitazume deeply in debt. One interesting note about Relic Armor Legasiam is that it was a reunion between Kitazume and Zeta and Double Zeta writer Endo Akinori, who did the script. Kitazume himself has been working as a manga artist since 2001. On the art side, the influence of that Kogawa-Tatsunoko Pro lineage is very obvious in Kitazume's character design for CCA. Mateo describes jawlines that are always distinctly outlined, a remnant of the famous, quote, Kogawa chin, a drawing quirk which consists of always clearly delineating a character's chin, especially when they raise their heads. This was a detail I had noticed, that drawn-in jawline when a character raises their head, but I would never have realized it was part of a long-running aesthetic or attributable to any specific artists. One of the most prolific animators on CCA, Umetsu Yasuomi, is also a standout, quote, one of the most original and radical artists in the developing realist movement. As a freelancer, he worked on such projects as Genma Taisen, Robot Carnival, and Akira for Madhouse, Grave of the Fireflies for Studio Ghibli, and Zeta's two openings and endings, plus Megazone 2-3, Part 2 for Sunrise. Umetsu's credits include work as an animator, character designer, animation director, screenwriter, and producer. As a child, his dream had been to draw manga, but after failing his college entrance exams, he set his sights on animation instead going to Tokyo to attend a technical school, Chiyoda School for Engineering and the Arts. He hadn't given up on manga completely, though. In his 20s, Umetsu worked at Kodansha drawing some short manga, but after none of his own work was accepted for publication, he abandoned that particular dream. One funny-slash-sad story. <laughs> As a kid, he was fascinated by Tezuka Osamu's manga, in particular the characteristic 
uh, quote, charming softness or bewitchingness of his female characters, their, to be frank, sex appeal. His parents seemed to think this was unhealthy, or at least a bad influence, and threw all of his Tezuka comics away. But Tezuka's work was Umetsu's first exposure to more explicitly sexual art. In terms of style, Mateo describes Umetsu's work as, quote, idealized but not prettified, anatomically accurate but not as statue-like as Kogawa's designs, extremely stylized and detailed, especially around the hair, eyes, and skin. Character motion is fluid, with very little distinct posing work. But that fluidity can feel uncanny, even mechanical. Here, I must make a quick digression to explain some animation technical terminology that I have actually found quite useful to learn about. (laughs) Most of us, now anyway, know that films have a frame rate, FPS, or frames per second. Generally speaking, more FPS makes motion in the video appear smoother. If you read about animation, you may see a phrase like animating on ones and twos, which is something Umetsu did to make character movement more fluid. What those numbers represent are the number of times a frame is shot. It's common in animation for a frame to repeat, to be shot several times in a row, making up several of the frames in a single second of animation. If a sequence is animated on threes, each frame repeats three times, on twos, two times, and so on. On ones provides the most fluidity and is also, clearly, the most work. In CCA, Umetsu was responsible for the sequences taking place in Sweetwater Colony, he designed the background characters in the subway scene, and he was entrusted with Sharon Nanai's pajama scene. For the subway scene, Tomino had specifically asked Umetsu to include as many different ethnicities as he could, and although the finished product clearly differs from Kitazume's design sensibilities, Tomino himself asked that they not be corrected. The Sharon the Nai scene particularly played to Umetsu's strengths. He's able to capture the sexual tension with great subtlety, in particular with the movement and facial expressions of the characters, but without resorting to more exaggerated movements. Within this scene, Umetsu also handled Shar's flashback to the One Year War, a sequence in which his style really fits and complements the scene's themes and emotions. The idealized style feels appropriate for a memory, as does the somewhat uncanny, quote, extreme fluidity of Amro and Lala and their mobile suits motion. One thing that I've always found extremely striking about that scene is the uncanny sense of difference from the way that same scene played out in First Gundam, that it's similar and yet so subtly different. And I think that fluidity has a lot to do with that feeling. I noticed watching CCA that the style of animation, the feel of it, was different in the memory sequence from the animation around the memory sequence. But it just would not have occurred to me that this was the result of a particular animator's stylistic quirks or sensibilities. I think the main thing I'm learning is that in my head, there is one or maybe two, three tops design people at the top of a production who establish how everything is going to look and then everybody else sort of falls in line with those design documents. And while I'm sure there are some productions like that, clearly there are a number of productions where that's not the case 
and individual people being entrusted with a scene or several scenes have more leeway for their own artistic vision. Part of what makes it hard for us, people who are not experts in animation, animation theory, or the anime industry, to analyze this kind of thing the way someone like Matteo can, is because the relationship between the designers and the animators is going to be different on every single production. You know, different designers, different animation directors, and different key animators are all going to uh, are all going to have differing amounts of influence on the final look of a show or a movie. And without a really deep, nuanced understanding of who you're talking about, what studio, what era, what specific individuals, it's going to be practically impossible to untie that knot and identify all the threads. One animator I wish I could find more about is Koizumi Koji. Described as a young prodigy, Koizumi was just 27 when he worked on CCA and died in a traffic accident only a year later. CCA was his penultimate work. His last would be Nagano's five-star stories. The lead animator for studio Dub Iwaki, he also subcontracted for Sunrise for projects from 1983 to 1989. In addition to animating some incredible mobile suit fights, he animated the rooftop scene of Camille and Four in Zeta, and in CCA, he was, quote, the most prolific animator handling the final 10 minutes or so of the movie. The final duel between the new Gundam and Sazabi, Amuro stopping Axis, the mystical light spread by the psycho frame, and the people on Earth looking up to it. I find that particular scene so moving every time I watch it, and learning that it was practically the last work done by this genius animator who died so young so soon afterwards, like, just gives it that much more power. Of particular note is Koizumi's great sense of rhythm. In his article, Matteo describes, for example, a first shot when the new Gundam lowers its beam saber, where the movement starts slow but seems to accelerate right before the beam saber hits, at the same time that the spacings get wider. Then again, when the Sazabi kicks, there's a close-up on its leg, and the movement feels slow. Then things speed up, and there's a cut to a wider shot. The slow sections give the viewer time to appreciate details in the animation, especially the intricate details of the mobile suits, and to brace for impact. And then the faster sections build tension, excitement, anticipation. Koizumi was also able to keep up with Tomino's storyboarding, which featured a lot of complex choreography and camera movement, regardless of the complexity of the figures in the scene. This creates numerous perspective changes, and it's quite difficult to keep mobile suit shapes and proportions consistent, even as the camera zooms and rotates, and the mobile suits themselves move in relation to each other and in relation to the backgrounds. And yet, Koizumi manages this pretty perfectly. I can still see that cut of the Sasabi kicking in my head perfectly. I've watched it so many times. There are so many more people involved in CCA's production with fascinating career trajectories, future relevance to Gundam, uh, interesting personal histories, and I wish we had time to talk about them all, but I hope you enjoyed learning more about a few of them, as well as some of the characteristics of anime realism of the late 1980s and the quirks and trademarks of a couple specific animators and animation lineages. 
And if you want to learn more, go read Mateo's article in its entirety. It is excellent. And now Tom's research on Beltorchka's children and the psychoframe sample. During our chat with Dr. Shar, I mentioned the scene in which Chen, operating a gun turret on the Rock Hylum, manages to shoot down the Neo-Zeon ace Resin. When I was talking to some listeners about this in our chat room, quite a few people had completely forgotten Resin, so let me just briefly recap her character. She is the Neo-Zeon ace with the shaggy hair, the bad attitude, the actually pretty rational hatred for cyber new types, and the purple Giradoga. And at just a little over halfway through the movie, she gets exploded by Chen, operating a rock hylum gun turret. If you want to watch the scene again, it starts at around the 76 minute mark. Earlier, I mentioned that during this scene, Chen seems to get a bit of assistance from the psychoframe sample, aka the magic space T, right before her shots start connecting. The camera zooms in on it. It is surrounded by a bluish glow, and it makes a noise. Resin's caught off guard. Her last words are something like, What is this power? How could I be hit? It's one of the few times in the movie that a character gets the standard Gundam death treatment, i.e. an internal cockpit shot, the monitors and controls visibly failing, then an explosion that occludes the pilot's body, at the moment when they make that sudden transition from living organism to inert space dust. The movie lingers here longer than we might expect, given the off-handed treatment afforded to other deaths, including those of very important characters. It is, perhaps, an important scene. If you listen to the English dub, the noise made by the psycho frame when Chen is shooting sounds like this. But that is not what you hear in the Japanese version of the audio. Here's that sound. And here's the same thing, but slowed down a bit. Before our interview with Dr. Shar, I sat down to watch this movie with a focus specifically on the theme of mothers. And when I got to this scene, I stopped. I rewound. I played it again and again. And every time I listened to this moment, I became more and more convinced that I was hearing a baby's cry amid the gunfire. So I noted it down and I mentioned it during the interview, as you heard, but later, when I was researching the history behind the tie-in novels Beltorchka's Children and High Streamer, I stumbled upon a summary of this scene as it appeared in the Beltorchka's Children novel. And then I started digging. I had to know if the summary was correct. And thanks to some of our patrons, Luna and Tirhan, who went out of their way to help me check both the original novel text and the recent manga adaptation, and Gordon over at the Gundam Book Club podcast, who actually sent me his own vintage copy of the novel, I can now tell you the following. Beltorchka's Children, or more properly, Mobile Suit Gundam Shars Counterattack Beltorchka's Children, was, as you probably remember, the second of two different novels Tomino wrote, covering roughly the same events as Shars Counterattack. The novel was based on Tomino's original proposal for the movie. It deviated in a few meaningful ways. The importance of the mobile suits was lower, or at least Tomino says that that was part of what ticked off the sponsors. 
and the role of Amaro's girlfriend was filled by his Zeta-era paramour, Beltorchka Irma, rather than the engineer Chen. Rather than passing Psychoframe to Amaro through Anaheim, Char allows him to capture a Psychoframe-equipped mobile suit. And, of course, as the novel's title suggests, Beltorchka is pregnant with Amaro's child, or children. What's more, she survives the story. The final clash between her, Hathaway, and Quest plays out differently, with Hathaway killing Quest by accident, just as Amaro inadvertently killed Lala 14 years prior. Beltorchka's pregnancy proved important during an earlier confrontation between Beltorchka and Quest. In the movie, you'll remember that Quest objects to Chen getting between herself and Amaro, and then demands that the older woman get off the ship. But in the version of that scene which appears in the novel, Quest senses that Beltorchka is pregnant, guesses that Amaro is the father, and storms off in a huff after Beltorchka confirms it. The gun turret scene that we've been analyzing also appears in Beltorchka's children. In this version, there is no psychoframe sample to aid Beltorchka's aim, but she still hears a noise just before her shots connect. A tiny voice crying, Mama. In the aftermath, she wonders, could that voice have been her child? So the idea that the noise coming from the psychoframe sample is actually a baby crying starts to seem a lot more likely now. While we're here, this scene immediately precedes the one where a wounded Jagan, desperately trying to return to the Rock Hylum, crashes into the side of the ship. In the novel, Tomino writes about how the damaged mobile suit wants to return to its mothership, Bolkan, heedless of the damage it might cause in doing so. And I'm not saying that this is definitely part of the whole maternal theme, but in a story that is so deeply interested in depicting hurt people longing for and lashing out against mothers of both the real and metaphorical varieties, the inclusion of this particular detail in this particular spot, well, it compels me. Later, in the movie, when Quest fires on the damaged Rigazi piloted by Chen, we see a direct shot dispersed by some kind of shield, similar to the way beams were sometimes deflected in Zeta or Double Zeta. The implication is that some new type power has intervened to protect Chen. Given everything else the Psychoframe sample is about to do, it seems reasonable to assume that it is the source of the shield. And by now it should come as no surprise to you that when this scene played out in the book, it is the fetus that blocks the blast with its psychic powers. There's more, too. The unborn child helps Beltorchka kill Gyune, although his name in this version is Gurabu, which I've seen rendered as everything from Grav to Grub. Then it shields Amuro from one of Shar's attacks, and even talks to him a little bit. Lots of people watch Shar's counterattack and come away from it asking questions like, okay, but what was the deal with the psychic space tea? Well, thanks to Beltorchka's children, we now have a pretty solid answer. The higher-ups on the movie production committee who were overseeing the project told Tomino that he wasn't allowed to make a movie about Beltorchka and her psychic space fetus, so he went home and he did the 1980s equivalent of find and replace all on his pitch to change Beltorchka into Chen and psychic space fetus into roughly uterus-shaped metaphor for a psychic space fetus, 
and then he submitted it again. And you know what? It worked. So I guess let that be a lesson to all of you out there whenever you get feedback on your work. Next time on episode 4.6, Committing Thousands of Sins, we discuss the filmmaking in Char's counterattack and thousands of cinema sins, eh? Eh? Get it? I got it. This is particularly unfair because that was his joke. A new guest. Low context reviews. The power of perspective. A movie that is somehow both too fast and too slow. If you stare into the camera, the camera stares also into you. Different kinds of fan service. Composition, camera movement, and cuddling? Ah yes, the three C's of cinema. And the optimism of the universal century. You can change your destiny. Mobile Soup Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website gundampodcast.com You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at Gundam Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com slash Gundam Podcast, or by email at gundampodcast at gmail.com And thank you for listening. The World Health Organization says that fully vaccinated Gundam fans can now share their wrong Gundam opinions on deserted street corners. So get out there and shout All of the Universal Century is an extended sports metaphor, and the vagueness of the Earth Federation's structure and ideology is intentional. No one can understand the offside rule. We won't hear you, but the world needs to know. This week's Wrong Gundam Opinion comes from frequent contributor to this hallowed segment, Flamingor Zed. Thanks, Flamingor Zed, for always being wrong. Also, what the f***? (laughs) Sorry. Anyway. Sick. Now I have a wrong Gundam opinion. Do it. Are you using the one you came up with yesterday? No. I want her to come and yell that at our window. Oh, that's true. Eh? Eh? I was going to make a point there, but then I realized I was wrong, so let's just pretend I didn't say that. Okay. Okay. Editing. I didn't realize how long it's been since we've done this. It's been like a year, I think. Oh my word. Yeah. This past year, we were covering a show with a relatively stable and well-adjusted young man. So. Oh, so there's no need for me to be here. <laughs> Your expertise was not required, Doctor. Shucks. <laughs> so oh, no. I, huh? Extremely relatable description of my childhood. <laughs> oh no. <laughs>
Um. Words are hard. Just take a minute. Yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> I think that's just the way Quest is gonna be. Because um, I don't think she's experienced very much lasting psychic damage, as it were. Um, I don't know if you stick with her in the series or anything. She, well, no, she gets killed. She explodes. Yeah, I remember that. I was like, yeah, she died. That was in my notes. So she did. She did suffer some um, very permanent, permanent, permanent damage. psychic damage there. <laughs> I feel like Shara would not keep the people around him that he couldn't trust. He could very much throw you into the vacuum of space on a whim. What is the name of them? Are they the space noids? Um, everybody who lives in space is a space noid. The faction you're thinking of is Neo Zeon. Thank you. I'll never get it. I'm sorry. Oh, uh, what was. You taught us a term. Um, I did. Um, did like I teach you? I moral feel like I've taught wounding people or many something. Things. Moral know. injury? Moral injury. Moral injury! Hooray! Yes. <laughs> I mean, no, that's sad! Oh, God! <laughs> Will she, like, be watching all the time? She's like, I want to watch over both of you. I'm like, that's creepy. I sort of want us to end on that. That was a really good line. <laughs> yeah. We've, we've been doing this yeah, for I mean, 90 I'm minutes. I'm sure you can, like, take that and take it to the end. Is there a candy, or can I not read my own writing and this says candy? Oh, nope, that says Chan dies, <laughs> not <Yeah>. candies. <laughs>